0: Hey! Welcome to Urban Planning is Not Boring. I'm Sam. And I'm Nat.
1: Hello! Hi! We're back. We are back and it's just Sam and I today. We love having these
0: after we've done like a few guests. Good to just chit-chat.
1: Yeah. So Sam, how, how are you up there in Northern California?
0: Yes. Yeah, so I started my job like a month ago now, almost to the date. I think I started August 14th. So when we're recording this, it's almost a day. I mean, a week, not a day <laughs> or a week, a month. <laughs> um, and so far it's going really well. I'm re- actually really liking it. Um. I... I kind of expected there to obviously be like a transition period since I went from like the LA office to this new office in San Francisco, but in all honesty, like the transition has been a lot smoother than I thought it would be. And now that I'm kind of in the swing of things and I'm on like specific projects, I feel like I have a really like a better gauge on like what I'm going to be doing each week like on Fridays I can kind of predict like this is probably what I'm going to be doing next week and how long it's going to take me and it's definitely been really helpful to dive into it and have you know specific projects that I'm working on um and yeah I'm doing a lot of cool stuff that you know a mix of kind of private development um traffic impact analyses that developments need to show that they're not going to have like a, you know, horrible impact on ingestion and kind of demand management and also like cool longer range planning projects. So
1: yeah, it's exciting. That is exciting. I'm so happy for you. And that's good to hear about your transition process as well, just that it went smoothly. Mm -hmm. So you happy to be Um, back up in NorCal? Um,
0: Yeah. I think like, I kind of didn't know what to expect moving back home. I moved back in with my parents, as I might've mentioned before, and it's been honestly like a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. I feel like since my parents still both work full-time and I'm now working full-time, we don't have like, it's not like we have a ton of overlap and we just kind of hang out at night. And I think something I need to work on is like, finding like a community outside of like my parents and like work people like not that I don't you know like hang out with both but I just feel like after work I need to like figure out things to do like hobbies kind of so that's like my kind of what I'm trying to figure out right now I just got dinner with a girl that went to USC but was not in our program like she's we like connected randomly and she works in like civil engineering so it's like a related field and it was it was cool just to like go out in San Francisco and like meet someone new and I really need to like push myself to do things like that more
1: Okay, I'm trying (laughs) I am the exact opposite where if I could just stay home and not talk to anybody I would be so happy.
0: Oh, well, that's my current state. And I'm like, I am happy with it. Like I've been reading a lot. I've just been like chilling with my family and my dogs, but I'm also like, okay, Sam, (laughs) you need
1: to be social. And so. I mean, don't put so much pressure on yourself. Yeah, no. It's okay. Like if you really, if you feel like you don't want to, you know, don't put any pressure on it, but I do know what you mean. Cause that's how I've been feeling in Los Angeles is like, maybe I should go out a little bit more and actually experience LA. (laughs)
0: LA's (laughs) like in 50 minutes of
1: traffic. So, ah, okay. Well, today's glorious episode.
0: Wait, before that we have an exciting announcement.
1: Oh yes. I'm so sorry. Oh, we have a couple of different things that we were supposed to talk about. (laughs) Um, but yes, let's talk about our exciting new gig. Yes. So we were contacted by
0: Affordable Housing LA. Or, that's not it at all. <laughs>
1: okay. It's Friday night. We've yeah. had a long week. That's <laughs> like not <laughs> it, even a little bit. So it's
0: called Abundant Housing LA. Um <sighs> Uh, And we've actually talked about this group um, before on the podcast. I think that we um, highlighted them as like a a cool organization to look into. Um, Anywho, so they, for the past couple of years, have done a pro-housing leadership certification training, which is a really cool 12-week kind of boot camp on all things housing. And... um, In this kind of course, students will gain practical skills and real world knowledge on various aspects of housing development from parcel to approval to construction through a kind of pro housing lens.
1: So Sam and I were honored when Abundant Housing LA reached out to us and asked if we would um, teach the first seminar for this kind of boot camp program. And we Obviously, excitingly said, excitedly, my God. That's a word. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think I said, excitingly, though, mm-hmm. and I'm excitedly said yes and accepted the offer. So we're going to be teaching the first seminar of this program and we just want to urge folks that if you are interested in learning more about housing or getting more involved, that number one, you just check out Abundant Housing LA. And Sam and I aren't one hundred percent sure if the enrollment is still open for this um, boot camp, but they are going to be hosting them, you know, every year. As based on the conversations that we've had, I think they're also planning for um, another uh, boot camp next year. So if you're interested, then. You know, feel free to browse their website, kind of peruse around and see um if it's fitting for you and if you're interested in signing up. Um, and just also stay in touch with them because they post a lot of really important resources and information about housing. And, you know, this is just a good opportunity, I think, where Sam and I are always getting questions about, you know, how do I get more involved in urban planning? But Don't like necessarily want to go to school, or you know, maybe don't have the time, or I'm just interested for more information. This is opportunities like this are often things that we would recommend, um, in order to just get more industry knowledge without actually having to apply to like a program or you know, a school or something like that. So, this is something that Sam and I wanted to highlight and just let it be known that you know, we're grateful to participate and we also want more folks to. Get involved and understand what Abundant Housing LA is, and you know what they do and how how amazing they are.
0: Yeah, and one last note: um, it you know if you are able to, um, it it does come with cost just to you know make sure that the program can run. But they do offer um, need based fee waivers and discounts. So if this is something you're interested in and the price tag is just not within your budget, um, do reach out to abundant housing and just explain that. And, you know, I'm sure that they'd be more than happy to help if they're able to. So yeah, we're super excited about that. It was definitely like a kind of crazy. I don't know. It's crazy for me. Like, oh my gosh, people are asking us to teach things. Like I just finished school. I'm, I'm not what. but (laughs) Natalie and I did take our affordable housing class not only works in affordable housing development, so I'm sure that she'll be the expert in this scenario, but it's going to be really exciting. And
1: yeah. we're going to have a lot of fun. And I think, yeah, it's just a really cool opportunity um, and great experience for us. And we're really grateful for the opportunity, especially, you know, just shout out to Abundant Housing for, you know, being interested in hearing what we have to say, yeah, seriously. <laughs> um, and also, I mean, good, um, good kind of segue. You know, we're going to be talking about housing with Abundant Housing LA, but today we're also talking about housing, which is my favorite topic in the world. <laughs> <laughs> so Sam shared an article with me a little while ago, and we have had this episode kind of queued up have been wanting to talk about this. Um, and so I want to give Sam the opportunity to kind of introduce the concept or I'm sorry, the topic um, and kind of share like just, you know, what kind of caught your eye about the article and, you know, and then we can dive into into what the contents are and what the information is. And shout out to Maya, who was so great in, you know, getting this information for us and, you know, kind of helping us structure this episode. We love you.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think I found, I think I saw this on LinkedIn and it's about Austin, Texas, and the, the, uh, title really caught my eye because I didn't know what incremental housing development meant. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, you know, went on to read this. It was, um, published in August, so it's still timely. And the gist of, What happened in Austin is on July 20th of 2023, the City Council of Austin, Texas passed resolutions that legalize three homes on every single family lot by right, expedite the approval of three and four plexes, and more than have the minimum lot size requirement and areas zoned for single family homes. Um, And then co-sponsors of the resolutions hope that taking a step toward welcoming more missing middle infill will abate the city's ongoing housing crisis. And so that, I think, segueing from like our conversation that we had with ULI about kind of zoning reform is huge. Like, what's it called? Um, Exclusionary zoning has been like one of the biggest causes of sprawl and the housing crisis because there are such stringent you know limits on well it's not a single family home it can't be here. Right. And so this where you're you're legalizing not only three homes on every single family lot but it's also by right. Yeah. Which is pretty incredible that yeah. like this is happening.
1: Yeah. And for those of you who aren't necessarily familiar with by right um when something is by right that just means that the, you know, kind of loopholes that you might typically have to jump through in terms of getting approved for, um, you know, like your development project. Basically, they're telling you that you are able to build it as proposed. It's, I wish I could explain this like a little bit better, but it's essentially, you know, you don't have to jump through as many loopholes as like a typical standard development project would in terms of you know getting certain things approved and you know it's already just pre-approved that if you want to put a fourplex on that lot then you are able to do so um and you don't have to you know typically there's like needs to be justification or cause or you know there has to be some kind of story as to why you're doing it but this new policy is saying that it's already pre-approved that you can put three and four on the lot um and I think this is, you know, very similar to Sam and I have talked about SB 9, which was passed. Um, and we've also talked about how interested we are in kind of seeing how SB 9 has had an impact in the state of California. Um, I'm very curious to know because, you know, there there is some um, certain kind of considerations that, you know, one can take when kind of addressing the housing crisis. But I do like the way that this article framed it as missing middle housing because, I think that one of the big things that often comes up with nimbyism is, oh, my God, you're going to put a 20 story building next to my single family home. I can't believe this. This is horrible. And then there's a bunch of pushback and, you know, all of this kind of rhetoric surrounding that. Whereas when you're building, you know, a fourplex and a threeplex, they are larger than a single-family home, but they're not, you know, astronomically different. You often, you know, we can see it, like particularly if you're in California and you're familiar with Pasadena area, um, or even like Los Angeles area. Sam and I both lived in LA, um, where we were a not a fourplex, but we were a very small multifamily housing complex right in a single-family neighborhood. They blend in quite well. They are not, you know, like this big obstruction, you know, um, in, in a single family neighborhood. So I do think that this kind of concept of missing middle infill housing is a really good way to frame the conversation around doing something like this. Um, so I think that's really great. And, you know, often we have these expert opinions on how urban planners should be approaching the transforming, you know, how urban planners should be, approaching the transforming community and how it kind of differs, you know, in, in the field. Um, and so one approach is described as this incremental housing development, and that means that you're gradually constructing and enhancing housing units over time. And local governments can also accommodate the evolving needs of the people with limited resources. Um, and so Sam, I don't know if you want to kind of dive in further to like the actual issue overview.
0: Yeah. And I just I think that it's important that we make clear that like incremental housing basically means that you can enhance or add on to or adjust housing units over time, like families as they need to, which makes sense in my head. Um, but yeah, so diving into the issue, um, the World Bank has supported incremental housing since the early 1970s, citing that these strategies often result in lower upfront costs for construction and make home ownership more accessible to low-income families. Sitting, cities in the U.S. like Austin have also taken this strategy to improve housing in their community. Um, as I mentioned, the City Council of Austin earlier this summer voted to have the minimum lot. Size requirement and area zone for single family homes, um, which is which was a law that made it difficult for planners to build like what Natalie was saying, kind of missing middle housing like row houses, townhomes, or three and four plexes. Um, The population of Austin is skyrocketing. I'm sure like everyone's kind of heard like oh everyone's leaving California, going to Texas, and like all these different. Things um, and council member Leslie Poole, the drafter of the resolution believes that this step is the early stage of incremental housing development for the city toward a better future for families of all incomes. And I just think that, yeah, it. I, I think that stuff like this is necessary and it's going to be popping up more and more.
1: Absolutely. I think it's also interesting that it's going to be happening in Texas where they're not facing the same kind of housing need that we are here in the state of California because when you consider for instance in California our backlog is so significant that unfortunately incremental housing is not going to be the you know one fixed solution mm-hmm. to ending our housing crisis but in Texas it's interesting to see that it's almost supplemental which is really cool because they're you know spurs of development are happening i mean in in austin particularly because they are witnessing the largest population increase in the state of texas um they are building multifamily housing complexes single family homes and then now with this kind of incremental housing policy we're going to start seeing these kind of mixed use neighborhoods which i'm interesting to see cuz it's I, i'm curious if it's going to be you know if it could be considered a pilot essentially but I, I think it's, you know, I don't want to say it's necessarily starting from scratch, but I think it's very interesting that it's happening in a place that isn't experiencing the same burdens that a state like California is facing, um, mm-hmm. which I think is really cool. Yeah.
0: And this article that I was referring to specifically talks about renters in Austin because Austin is dominated by single family zoning and with the population gains that is happening, there's definitely like a pretty big limit to where, or there was a limit to where and how new housing could be constructed and impacted like affordability and abilities to rent throughout the city. And so I think that this is something that probably was spurred like, during COVID when people started moving and they were working remote or they just wanted to move somewhere where it was more affordable. And now it's just going to be even, well, obviously with SB9, like we talked about, it's still going to be like challenging. It's not, it is ending single family zoning, but there are challenges associated with it. So we don't know exactly how this will play out yet, but it seems on the outset that it will be a lot easier for, you know, like more affordable, smaller dwelling units to pop up.
1: Absolutely. I think with anything, you know, I understand always that the intention behind these things are, are obviously, you know, there's good intention behind it. And I think in Austin, I am, you know, I'm very curious because I haven't really heard very much about the result of SB9, like what's actually happened in the state of California since its passage. Um, But I'm curious to kind of follow along in both the state of California with SB9 and now also in Texas with this policy, you know, what that's actually going to look like, especially because in SB9, There were some kind of constraints where you couldn't, you know, you had to be a homeowner who lived on the lot and continued to live on the lot, even if you added to the parcel that you lived on. And that was to avoid the cash for keys concept where developers would try to, you know, just buy your home outright and then build these, you know, three plexes and four plexes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious if Austin is doing something similar or if theirs is different and then what that's going to look like because Austin's is saying it's buy right. And so my assumption is with buy right. I don't know if that means just like any vacant lot. If it's in a single family zoned, originally single family zoned area, if they can just put a fourplex on it, like as a developer, I'm curious to see, you know, what the differences are and what that's going to look like. Um, But it's a very interesting concept. And I'm a huge advocate for missing middle housing, especially because I think in the field of urban planning, we're often, or also in the field of housing, you know, there are a lot of proponents in urban areas that say like density, 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 no matter what, but I think it's really important to kind of consider the context in which you're building, because I don't agree that sticking a 10 story building right next to a resident single family residential area is, you know, very sensitive to, to um, the context of a neighborhood. And so I do think that density is important to consider. And so I think something like this kind of alleviates that, you know, that argument of like, wow, it's going to be this huge building. That's just like this huge obstruction in my neighborhood um, versus, you know, with this kind of missing middle housing, you're only talking about typically two story buildings. They're not any higher than that. Um, And so I'm, I'm really interested to see how that's going to play out. And I think I'm, I'm optimistic that good things will come. Um, So, yeah, but now we just we can just dive in and discuss some different things about this. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's something that's
0: interesting that um is is kind of talked about with this with incremental development is that so that, like that there are a lot of barriers to prevent neighborhoods from kind of evolving over time. Right. And obviously like zoning the intent of some of our zoning laws was to separate non-compatible uses. And now that we're kind of shifting our mindset towards like, oh, like transit oriented development, 15 minute cities. And like, there are kind of these shifting paradigms about the ways that cities work. I do think that this kind of incremental development of like, okay, well, let's like, you know, have, you know, this, this can be subdivided and let's just, you know, have more people and we can have more density and i think that the ability to evolve over time in response to different needs is important and that's kind of what incremental development stands for at at its core how i understand it um so yeah but we can we can kind of dive in because i feel like it's interesting having this side by side with sb9 yeah and i don't i i probably should have looked this into this.
1: I also don't really know what SB9 has done. Um, or if there's well, been I think a it's lot not of not even I I don't even think it's necessarily that <clears throat> we didn't look into it. I just don't think that there's enough information yet because it's such a new policy. Yeah. You're not really gonna have a lot of data that's gonna show you, you know, what the actual impact of SB9 has been yet. Um yeah. but maybe that's something, you know, episode idea. Maybe we can see if there is some information that maybe somebody's tracking it and might be able to kind of highlight any any changes that have come. But it does get very difficult with a policy like SB9 because these are have to be homeowners mm-hmm. that choose to build on their own property. So I don't know how you even collect data in relation to that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I guess it would go through like permitting because you would still have to do that. But I'm curious to see you know what information or data has been collected thus far. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: I will say in this article um, that I'll link, um, this individual, Nolan Gray, I think he is the author of Arbitrary Lines, which is a book about, it's called Arbitrary Lines, How Zoning Broke the American City and How to Fix It. He did cite in an article in The Atlantic that one in every four homes built last year, 2022, in LA was an ADU. Yeah. So I don't know if that's part of S, like if that was a result of SB9 or if like ADUs have just gained popularity because of the housing crisis and the affordability crisis like challenges. But that's something.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, it is. Um, you said every one in four. Yeah. Newly developed. Uh,
0: every one in four homes built last year was an ADU.
1: Okay, so that sounds like most likely new construction and they added an ADU in the back. So I don't know if that would be applicable to SB 9, but it's still highlighting that there are individuals who are acknowledging the importance of building homes such as ADUs and such as like just lower density but occupying the lot in different ways kind of reimagining the way that you're actually building a single family home yeah. um and so i think that that is worth mentioning and it's very you know interesting to know that 1 in 4 is pretty significant
0: yeah and i think you know we have this kind of note about expediting housing development plans faster mm-hmm. um from my experience in California, at least we have measures in place to expedite affordable housing development through like CEQA.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um I guess like you can bypass parts of CEQA if it's affordable housing, which kind of relates to this in a way. Um, I don't know how market rate housing would fit into this. I guess... Because this is basically just saying any single family lot could be subdivided, then you could put market rate, you could put affordable, you could put anything. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting.
1: Yeah. It is going to be interesting to, to again, just like see kind of how this unravels um, in California. I mean, I think the, the hard part is that when you're dealing with affordable housing, often a lot of folks say that it's really wonderful how there are these opportunities to kind of expedite development. Mm -hmm. And there definitely are, but there are also, as I've been learning (laughs) um, in my new job, there are a lot of additional loopholes that market rate housing doesn't have to go through that affordable Mm -hmm. housing does. And that's specifically on the financing side. Mm -hmm. Um, And it becomes very timely. And when you're dealing as private developers with public agencies, you have to go through the bureaucracy of dealing with a public agency and that becomes very timely. And, you know, you and I have talked about this on the podcast. When you're a developer, you are trying to stay within a very strict timeline because you have, you know, your financial analysis kind of rides on getting a project complete at a certain point. And so you have a lot of dates that you're trying to stick within. And so when you are dealing with these, you know, with public agencies that aren't as timely as you would like them to be, it can really, you know, hold up a project and it can make things very stressful. And so I, you know, I think in general, I love seeing things like this happen where there are policy changes on one front, And at the same time, I wish that it was like, you know, sometimes I'm like, maybe let's hire some more people Mm -hmm. for the public agencies so that we can, you know, get documents reviewed faster so that we can have these processes, you know, work a little bit more efficiently. Um, Because I really do think that, you know, when we talk about like the root causes of the housing crisis, it Obviously, you know, it comes down to supply and demand, of course, and supply being so low, um, particularly talking about California, you know, you're you're trying to figure out, okay, well, how do we how do we add to supply? And I think that policies like incremental housing is great because, yes, you can add to supply. But at the, you know, at the rate that we're at and, you know, how how kind of deep into it we are with our significant backlog. Unfortunately, missing middle housing is not going to solve that and so you do need larger multifamily projects. And so I think that a part of me is, you know, I'm not trying to knock the the good policies that are coming forward and and you know, the good intentions, but I do just kind of wish that there was a more fine-tuned look at what the actual challenges are when it comes to just building housing in general. Um because I think that you know, there are a lot of things that can change in different, you know, areas of development that are just, I'm not really seeing happen. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I think, uh, I'm not trying to put like a pessimistic view on it, but I do just sometimes like, I see policies like this and I'm like, wow, that's really great. But what about, you know, this other side of it? Like Mm -hmm. let's, let's maybe start looking at that as well. And that's just me as, you know, just constantly thinking about <laughs> housing. <laughs> I mean,
0: I, it's interesting because obviously I see um, like land use and housing from the perspective of transportation at work. Yeah. And it's not, you know, financing the housing. It's kind of like looking at the site plan, like, is it going to work for vehicles? But I specifically have a few projects that I'm working on that are in the city of San Mateo which is where I grew up and it's really crazy to see these, you know, kind of lower scale, like one, two stories just kind of turn into these or, you know, planned to be these kind of bigger, more intense uses, like mixed use office and retail or mixed use retail and housing. And I being in the field that I am, and knowing kind of what kind of impact these buildings can have, I'm excited to see San yeah. Mateo changing because I do think it's exciting, and we're like right near a train station downtown San Mateo, so there's a lot of access to transit, and there's kind of a lot of big things happening. Yeah. But I think what this what this kind of bill gets at that this kind of bigger scale development doesn't is like the ability for like individual homeowners to say like, hey, this is something that like we want to do with our lot, like we want to subdivide. Or, you know, and I think that it's like kind of what you're saying, like we definitely need to address the other sides of the like these issues. But it's kind of cool to like in tandem see like, oh, there's these kind of big developments going on in downtowns or like like CBDs, but there's also like these other kind of smaller scale laws that are in place in cities that it's like oh if you as like a citizen say I want to do this with my land I see the issues then like you can do something about it now and I think that it's like empowering it can be empowering or it can be scary and you know there's a lot of I'm sure there's a lot on both sides but I just think it's interesting to kind of see both happening
1: Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And like I said, I'm not trying to knock like this policy whatsoever. I think it's great and I think it invites opportunity as you said. It's reimagining the way that we look at housing in the traditional sense because it's always been traditionally our, you know, exclusion exclusionary zoning, our historical redlining. We've always looked at it as like, okay, there's single family, there's multifamily, there's, you know, industrial, there's commercial, et cetera. And now we're starting to say, okay, no, it's time to reimagine how we're actually building cities and what the opportunities are within those cities. And I think this highlights a piece where often people say like oh well it's already built so there's nothing we can do about it and it's like hey actually here's a new opportunity where it is already built but we can actually transform it if we choose to do so and if we have yeah. the means to do so and the resources right. um and so i'm excited to see what's going to come out of this and you know there are a couple of kind of discussion points that Sam and I have like written out for this episode and I kind of want to dive into those because I think it's good like for us to just you know talk through them.
0: Yeah which one do you want to start with? Um, I think we can go just from the beginning. Yeah Um, so this one kind of talks about incremental housing strategies having positive effects in other metro areas um, outside of Austin and you know this is obviously still new in Austin But I think it's interesting to think about, at least in the context of where we are to think about this, because, you know, I'm living in a suburb right now. And I think, you know, it's interesting because I don't know if people would necessarily do this. Yeah. If given the, even if given the option, because single family homes still mean a lot to people. Like you work really hard, you buy a home, you have a family, like that's kind of like the quote, American dream. So I don't necessarily know if it would happen, but I think giving people the option to Mm -hmm. do something like this could definitely have a positive impact Mm -hmm. all over. And I think because I'm in transportation and I'm always thinking about like sprawl and whatever, like if we do see an increase in development in places that are single family zoned, that needs to come with like other like improvements transit service, walkability. And that's like a my only kind of thing that I'm hung up on is, yes, it's great that we're getting rid of this exclusionary zoning effectively, but also when you're not focusing development on like a central business district or like a downtown where there is transit service and it's walkable and it's a 15 minute city, like then you're just going to have a whole lot more cars in these mm-hmm. areas where you might not have the capacity. So that's like my kind of where I'm kind of getting a little tripped up is thinking about like yeah it's great because people will be housed and it might be more affordable but we also need the other
1: improvements that need to come along with that absolutely and so yeah this is where like I think this is where the challenges of policy and urban planning really start getting people tripped up because you have policymakers who are like, wow, this is going to be really, really good and have a really great impact all around. And we think that it's wonderful. And so we're going to implement it. And then you have an urban planner that comes just like you, which extremely valid point is, okay, we're going to put all of this housing and how are we going to accommodate all the people that are now going to influx into the city? Because we... If you're, especially if you're in a suburban area and you're already dealing with the traffic congestion of being in a suburban area because you're having to drive into a city, a central city, then we're now adding additional cars into suburbia that have to drive back into the city because that problem hasn't been solved. And you have all of these other amenities that also need to come alongside housing when we talk about really like livable areas. So, and that's where I think That's why I love urban planning so much is that you're, you're never just talking about housing and you're never just talking about transportation. You're never just talking about, you know, commercial, commercial districts or, or businesses or, or whatever the case is. You're talking about them, how they're going to function in tandem with one another and make the area livable, walkable, you know, enjoyable, because it's always the concept is live, work and play. Like that's, Mm -hmm. I feel like that should be the new American dream. (laughs) <laughs> I'm kind of like, I don't want to think about the white picket fence, single family home with my two car garage. Mm-hmm. I want an area in which I could bike down to my coffee shop and not get hit by a car. I would love yeah. that. Or yeah. if I could, you know, not have to get in my car to go, you know, 10, 15 minutes away, if I could take, you know, another kind of transit option. So I think that it's just like this kind of I don't know, not a clash necessarily, but I think that maybe more urban planners should be brought to the table when discussing policies like this. (laughs) Because I think there just need to be a little bit more, there needs to be some more consideration because I think you brought like, your point is extremely valid and not one that I would have off the bat thought of. (laughs) So. It's, yeah, it's definitely like
0: interesting, interesting. It's interesting to think. I don't know. It's like an interesting thought exercise, and I'm sure, like in Austin, it's, you know, I'm not sure, but I hope that like this is something that they've thought about. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I don't. I don't know. I think it's just something that now that I'm kind of diving into working with private development, but on the transportation side, it's like something I'm constantly, yeah, this in
1: the back of my mind. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Go ahead. No, no, that was it. (laughs) I was, uh, I'm thinking it's good. So to kind of jump into this next like discussion topic is, um, you know, is it really worth the money to expedite housing development plans faster over gradual change? And when I think about, you know, the investment, I mean, no matter what, whether you are doing something over time and you're doing it gradually or you're doing it very quickly, you know, you're gonna spend money. Um, The one thing that can kind of be a little bit scary when it comes to development in particular, and that's development of any kind, whether you're talking about transportation, infrastructure improvements, transportation in general, housing, whatever the case is, when you're doing something gradually, And over time, you run the risk of things being more costly as time goes on. And so I think this is why when we see these kind of like, especially in public agencies, when you see these large scale development proposals, everybody's like, oh, my God, look at how much money this is going to be. This is ridiculous. I can't believe we're investing this much, yada, yada, yada. But the thing is, is that we either invest it at the current price that it's locked in now, or we could potentially run the risk of having to spend 10 times more in the future. Um, And so I think that's something to definitely consider. Um, But if we're talking about specifically just like expediting housing development, I always think just as quickly as possible, because I mean, we live in California, so anything that can be done fast and efficiently and safely is most important in my opinion. But I do understand this idea of gradual change because I think that helps more so on the political side, I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you don't want to, or I think that when you, you know, just come in somewhere and say, hey, we're going to be revamping this entire neighborhood or this entire community, you do often have a lot of people who are like, whoa, um, Mm -hmm. like what's going on? This This is a little bit you know, intense and it can often be confusing and that can, you know, warrant a lot of people to come forward and oppose projects often because they aren't proposed, you know, in the most appropriate ways, or they're just, mm-hmm. you know, kind of thrown at folks, um, with not much explanation. And so I do understand the potential of like gradually starting to phase projects. Mm-hmm. And I think something like, you know, infill development, it is essentially, I mean, you're not technically phasing it, but it is this kind of gradual change where you're saying, Hey, not trying to ruffle any feathers. We're just gonna make a couple of changes. You know, <laughs> let's see, let's see how that works. Um, I'm not hundred percent sure. I don't really know what the right answer is when, when you're talking about that. Um, I don't think anyone knows what the right answer is. No, I think from, I mean, experience, um, I just constantly like As much as I love housing, I also love transportation and and those concepts, especially like talking about it with my dad and stuff. And it's funny because he always talks about, um, you know, this kind of elaborate transportation network that we had in the 1950s in Los Angeles, in the state of California. And we completely ripped it away and we're now rebuilding it literally on the exact same lines that once existed and we're doing it you know for so much more money I mean I can't even begin to describe how much money it's insane but I think that's something where I just always am thinking about like the longer you wait it's just like often you know just prices go up things get more expensive it just it's you know I just don't really, and I don't think too, like in a crisis, I don't think there is time to wait. I think it's just like, you need to just act and that's always easier said than done. So I acknowledge that as well.
0: Yeah. And I think that this brings up like, you know, housing development on a large scale, like versus this kind of gradual change that incremental development is talking about. And I think you brought up earlier like neighborhood local context. And obviously, you don't want to like change the fabric of a neighborhood. The residents probably will not like that and like will be opposed. And as planners, I don't think it's our job or like developers to like basically take control of a neighborhood and say, like, or like a street or a place and be like, this is what we're doing. We don't care what you think. And so I think that like, yes, where there's where we have transit oriented development and there is obviously a need for housing there and there might not even be housing there. Like that's a good opportunity to be like, let's, you know, put housing there because it will be, you know, convenient for people. And, you know, this is kind of the new wave of what we're looking at. But I think in terms of gradual change, something like this is good because it's not gonna like what you're saying it's not gonna like completely change the fabric of a neighborhood it's not gonna put like four-story buildings next to single family homes like you're gonna you're like yeah you might have like a triplex but that's you know not gonna be crazy change from yeah. a single family home in terms of height and like scale and massing and whatever right so I obviously don't know anything really about the money side of this. So I'm not going to comment on that. (laughs) I think that it's, we need a mix of both. And if there is money to be spent to expedite housing development anywhere, like you're saying, we have a need, a dire need. I think, I don't know. I think it's probably worth it. I would say so.
1: (laughs) I would. I am uh, like so not an expert on this, like at all. But I mean, honestly, though, if my, as you know, a taxpayer, if this is what the money is going towards, which God only knows, but if this is what my money is going towards, I'm happy uh, to take my money, I guess. Um, (laughs) I guess. I say, I guess, because, you know, you just never know. But um, I think that just brings, you know, this other side of things where I was saying like this clash between policy and urban planning policy politics also is like the concept of incremental housing kind of put like, does that put less pressure on lawmakers? Mm -hmm. And that is such an interesting like discussion topic because obviously, you know, we are not policymakers, we're not lawmakers, we are not elected officials, but I've witnessed enough in the public sector and the private sector when it comes to elected officials that, you know, I do think that policies like this do kind of put a little bit less pressure on them because it's almost like they can say, well, you're always going to have because there's always NIMBYs always so no matter what somebody's going to be upset that you're putting any kind of density at all like even mm-hmm. if it's one additional story um that there's any kind of increased density anywhere but as a lawmaker it is you know you could often argue that okay well i'm not advocating for this like crazy you know um mixed use development i'm just right. saying we can add you know, it's just sprinkle in a little yeah. a little small scale development. Just sprinkle it in there. <laughs> it's salt base um townhomes yeah. and everything's gonna be fine. Um, but you know, I'd be curious, I'm curious to kind of see what the rhetoric is around, you know, policymakers. Cause the thing is is that if somebody's gonna get it, no matter what somebody you're gonna upset somebody, promise yeah. you. No matter you can what, policy, never, you can never yeah. win on all sides. Never. So I feel like if you're already going to upset some folks, you might as well just go all the way. So I say <laughs> you advocate for, for high density everywhere. Just kidding, guys. <laughs> no, but I do think that you, like, when I read this question,
0: I didn't really know. I, like, my head went empty, kind of. But I do think that you bring up a good point where, You know, people are going to be up in arms Mm -hmm. if there is a significant change to a neighborhood, even if the net positive, if if it will result in net positive. Like there will be people don't change is hard. Like change is hard for everybody. And I think that like we need, we do need to acknowledge that and in this field. But I do think that incremental development, where it's like, okay, like we're going to just like have an add on to this house, or we're going to have like one more. like an ADU here like yeah. I do think that it it could it could put less pressure on people in decision making power like yeah. decision making positions in you know on city councils or on you know governing boards where it's you know people might not be as mad if it's not a huge change and that's really interesting to think about because I yeah. had a about it like that
1: Yeah. You're most likely, I mean, if you're talking about like the development of an ADU or a fourplex or a triplex, most likely you're going to upset like just the immediate surrounding neighbors because it's going to be like, oh my God, you know, construction and development, all this change. Like, why are you doing this? You're going to disrupt me in my white picket fence, single family home. I'm not happy, Mm -hmm. but I think that, yeah, if you were an elected official who's saying, you know, we're going to start allowing for 10-story buildings to go up in single-family neighborhoods, you're upsetting a lot more people right. um, that are maybe not within that, you know, smaller radius uh, surrounding, you know, the area. And so I do understand why it does kind of in some sense potentially alleviate some pressure on policymakers. Um, Wait, before you move on. It's actually uh,
0: really interesting because I'm just thinking about this now. A house right across from my parents' house. Uh-huh. They took city council. They after SB9 said, I want to subdivide. I want mm-hmm. two, two units, two houses on this, on this. And people were pissed. There were some people that showed up to the city council meeting saying, I support this, like whatever. Uh-huh. They I feel like they were probably more so indifferent, but they were like, you know, this person's going to do what they're going to do, whatever. Right. Some people were not happy. And it's only one other thing. It's a pretty big lot. So yeah. you could easily fit two smaller units, but they were not happy. And I kind of, am, even am I feel like even if I didn't know totally what was going on and I wasn't a planner, I would still be like, it's not my lot. Right. It's not impacting me if there's one more family or one more person right. or whatever. Like, it was just crazy to me that people were so angry about subdividing
1: into it, one into two promise you it's always going to be that way. And that's, what's so crazy to me. And often I think this is where we also get back to like, how are you, how do you communicate with people? How do you get consensus? How do you build relationships so that people understand that? Like, this is like, I feel like often, especially at city council meetings, when people go to talk to like oppose something, they make it as if like, it's personally against them. Yeah. Like me putting another house on my lot is like a personal attack, attack. on this individual. And I think it's very interesting because I always want to understand where that comes from. Why do you feel so like opposed to something like this? I really, and I think it's often, and you brought up a good point too, is like change of any kind, I think is really just stressful for folks, certain folks. And I think that often there are just individuals who don't like to see the fabric of a community that they've always always lived in, like start to change. And I think they have a fear of like, well, if this person does it, like more people are going to do it and it's going to be right. this domino effect. And then my entire neighborhood is going to change. But I also think that we're not necessarily framing it in the right way because often I feel like that concept of change is negative When in reality, you can frame it as like being a really positive thing Um, because you're, you know, maybe potentially you're bringing more people into a community to invest in that community. That means more resources are brought to that community. That means that there are going to be, you know, more positive impacts to that community. And as you said, even if there's a net positive impact people are still opposed. I'm curious as to like, I want to understand, I want to live in the human psyche and understand yeah. why these people are like, so against it. Yeah. It's very interesting. And like, even when having conversations with certain people, cause like I live in the suburbs. So like when talking to neighbors Same. or friends and family friends, they're often like, Oh my God, did you see like, a few streets over, they're building this really large multifamily housing complex. I'm like, yeah, well, we have like this huge mall that's like right next to it. It's also on one of the busiest roads so on Route 66. It's next to the free, like, it's not next to the freeway, but it's close to the freeway. It's close to the metro. We have a metro link station. I'm like, so yeah, I-, I do understand why the vacant lot that I've been looking at since <laughs> I've lived here since I was five is now being developed. I think that's great like yeah. i don't think that's a problem yeah. and it was funny cuz when they started building those multifamily housing complexes in my suburban neighborhood um they in turn also were like oh we're going to build a new park because there was number one i i don't know how this is even possible with a housing crisis but in my neighborhood alone within like a five mile radius, we have hundreds, if not thousands of acres of land that is completely vacant and has been since I was a child. Cause I've lived here my whole life and, um, seeing that now they're developing it is really, really great. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're also very park rich in my neighborhood, um, which makes sense because it's suburbs, but we, They decided to build a park as well. So this is the other thing is like with this development is also coming other opportunities for different kinds of development, for better development, for things Mm -hmm. like park. Now they're putting in a dog park. Everybody's really happy about that. And I can promise you that would not have been built if there wasn't going to be multifamily housing right next to it. Promise. Yeah. Yeah. It wouldn't have happened. So I think that there's like a way to frame it, that, Mm -hmm. you know, it could potentially maybe change people. I mean, I don't think so. Cause people are just, you know, people will remain people, but, ah, maybe we can just lessen the nimbyism, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, the, they did
0: say in this article about Austin, and then I think we should wrap up cause we've been talking for a really long time. It's almost Great. 6 PM.
1: Oh my God. Um,
0: <laughs> they did say that they, there was not a lot of younger people opposed to this yes, yes. which makes that. sense because they are the people that, we, they, we are the people that are most impacted or going to be at least most impacted by this. And so it makes sense that, you know, it might be a generational thing like, oh, well, I bought my house so
1: long ago. I deserve it because I worked hard for it. Don't change it. It's like, well. You also paid $50,000 for it. And now I have to pay a half a million and I don't have it. So (laughs) I don't have it. Yeah, like my income doesn't qualify me to buy a a house set in this economy. So if there's gonna be an apartment complex built that's gonna lower the rate of every other house, okay, I'm yeah. happy. That yeah. makes me happy as a is it happy as a clam? As a clam. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and hopefully you don't lose equity on your house. And I don't think you will, but you know change must come guys yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have to accept it but um to wrap up which is Sam brought up a very good point we've been see this is what happens when we start talking about housing or particularly when i start talking about it i just can't stop
0: Thank you so much for listening. We really hope that you enjoyed this episode of Urban Planning is Not Boring. If you did, please remember to send us to your friends and follow us uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And remember guys, urban planning is not boring. No, it is not.